Good morning, church. <clears throat> Please turn with me to the table of contents in your Bible. <laughs> Just save everybody the embarrassment right now. Let's all turn to the table of contents and look for the book Obadiah in the Old Testament. It's only one page probably, unless you have a large print Bible like mine. It spreads over several pages. But Obadiah, very short book in the Minor Prophets. We've started a new series on the Minor Prophets. You find it on page 722 and the Bible's provided in the pew. And we start with Obadiah because, <clears throat> as I said, we're going to study it, these minor prophets, uh, uh, chronologically. And remember, we call them the minor prophets not because they're unimportant, but because they're small books. And they're tucked in to the end of your New Testament, and they cover uh, about 500 years of redemptive history from the time of King Solomon or the end of King Solomon's reign all the way up until the end of the Old Testament and 400 years before Christ. And we we're focusing on these little books because we don't know them very well. We tend, the church tends not to know them very well, but they have lots of guidance for us in our practical Christian living. And they're short books for short studies. Uh, but uh, they are brief but brilliant. Obadiah is traditionally thought to be the oldest minor prophet. He's probably not, probably a little bit later, but we just don't know. Obadiah is only mentioned uh, one or two times in the Bible. It's not clear that he's the author of the, the one who is mentioned as the author of this book. But uh, he is describing something that is painful in the life of the Israelites, in the memory of the Israelites. They would have known exactly the events that he was referring to, namely the neglect of the nation of Edom, a cousin nation to Israel, a neglect for them in their time of need. Reading between the lines, we understand that Edom looked on while Judah, Israel or Judah, were being attacked, were being uh, plundered by the enemies, and they did nothing. They did not raise a hand to help. In fact, it appears uh, from history perhaps that they actually helped those who were plundering Judah, who were tearing down the temple. There's even the rumor that these Edomites set fire to the temple. Now, I said that they're the cousin nation of Israel. What I mean by this is, is this. Many of you have heard of Jacob and Esau, those twin brothers, those twin sons of Isaac. Isaac doesn't occupy a lot of room in the book of Genesis, but he is the quintessential dysfunctional father. Absentee father, given to indulgence, played favorites between his sons. He liked Esau because he was redheaded and a hunter which is a perfect reason to love anybody. But he loved him more than Jacob. That was the problem. And Jacob was a mama's boy and liked to cook and spend time with his mother. And Isaac uh, was glad that Esau was born first because he wanted him to have the inheritance. So Jacob and his mother cooked up a scheme, literally, to steal the inheritance from Esau, to steal the blessing. Esau didn't forget it. He held a grudge against Jacob, wanted to kill him. Eventually, Jacob 
repented, reconciled with uh, Esau, but their children never forgot, as children are are prone to do, as generations are prone to do, not to forget the wrongs that have been done to them. So these, these Edomites, descendants of Esau, never forgot that Jacob's, Jacob stole their father's inheritance. They held a grudge. And those Israelites never forgot that Edom, the, the Edomites or the descendants of Esau were the favorites of Isaac. They never forgot it, though their fathers reconciled. These descendants never forgot. And every time they had a chance to do evil to the other, they did it. And especially the Edomites in the most vulnerable moment in Israel's history. And this is the record. Obadiah's brief but brilliant little prophecy here is uh, vibrantly written. It's energetically written in the Hebrew. There's vibrant sentences and, and, um, and uh, exciting verbs by which God is, is painting this picture. Obadiah is painting this picture of God putting His arms around His people and saying, I know what has been done to you, or I know what is going to be done to you, and I have you. At the same time, I don't want you to forget the lesson I am teaching these who are persecuting you. Well, what is that lesson? That's what we find in the book of Obadiah, and we'll go ahead and read the entire book. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? But how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? An understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. 
Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of his host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, to see the good news of the gospel in this old book of Obadiah. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. For a number of years, I studied intensely the Great Awakening, the first great revival in our nation's history. Started in the 1740s, went into the early 17, the mid-1750s. What got my attention of that uh, Great Awakening uh, back in seminary was was this this the, the theme of the Awakeners. Those were the preachers, the Awakeners preaching. I wondered at first, what was the kind of, what, what, what were they preaching about that, uh, that God used to spark a revival that spread through the New England states, saved 150,000 people, completely revolutionized the culture? Uh, preaching to largely empty churches, very few people before the Revolutionary War were going to, going to church at all, but they all felt very good about themselves. What were they preaching? Were they preaching against their not going to church? Were they preaching about their, their materialism? Were they preaching about sorcery back to the, to the witch trials? Or were they uh, preaching about selfishness? The consistent theme of their preaching was against pride. No one was going to church people were doing what they thought was right in their eyes because in their view, they had the blessings that they had as a result of coming to the colonies because of their goodness. They were proud. Jonathan Edwards, the primary preacher of the Great Awakening, others were George Whitfield and Gilbert Tennant and But Jonathan Edwards, who was actually fired from his pulpit for preaching this way and had and became a missionary 
to the Native Americans in his area, the Stockbridge Indians as they were called in those days. Jonathan Edwards thundered from his pulpit words like this, pride is the worst viper that is in our hearts. It is the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. It is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. Consistent theme that led to, of the preaching that led to the first great revival, the first great awakening was to people who felt themselves to be very good and were quite proud of that. And the warning was, you possess the sin that is considered by God to be the root of all sins. If pride is the root of all evils, if pride is the sin that God hates more than any other, then it is important for us, wouldn't you agree, to understand what it looks like, where it comes from, what we're to do about it. Obadiah provides that, and we're, we'll take actually three weeks to go through Obadiah, pondering very carefully what God is exposing in their hearts, which is categorically the same as in our hearts, and also pointing them to the Savior, pointing us to the Savior, whom God is preserving this line of people so that He might bring that Savior through them to us. What are the sources? What are the reasons for these people uh, to whom Obadiah is speaking? What are the reasons for their pride, the sources of their pride? He's addressing uh, Edom, the, the descendants of Esau, as I said. But remember, he is writing to the people of God. So while he is preaching to these Edomites who have taken advantage of the people of Israel or Judah, he is allowing his people to overhear that they might be warned against the same. And the first thing that he confronts, the first source of their pride is in verse 3, their strength. The pride of your heart has deceived you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, there in your nest set among the stars, I will bring you down. What is he referring to except the town where these Edomites lived? It is what we call today Petra, which lies just slightly outside of Amman, Jordan. It's a flat little valley. You have to cross some tall mountains to get into this flat valley. It's about a mile square. And in the middle of that flat valley is a, small, a, a rock structure uh, about 130 feet tall all around at its tallest point. And there, these descendants of Esau, the Edomites or the Nabataeans, sometimes referred to in the Bible, carved a city out of these red stones around them. They carved a city out of it. You've actually seen it, though you may not be aware of it. When you watched Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, remember that? You saw Indiana Jones ride his horse through that little passageway, and he arrived at the Alcazni Treasury, the main uh, structure within the uh, settlement of Petra or uh, the, the Edomites' uh, city. 
And it was uh, or is one of the wonders of the world. And for almost a thousand years, it was hidden from modern sight until it was rediscovered in 18 by an archaeologist named Burkhart. And <clears throat> this, this place was the perfect place for a small people to defend itself from all of their enemies. And it's what's being alluded to here, that uh, they are set firmly, ensconced firmly in this fortress, and no one is capable of taking them down. Uh, you, you know, even if you found, even if you found Petra, you, when you crossed over the mountains, you would be immediately in view, one mile square of flat land, and the watchman on the 130-foot uh, mountains all around could see you coming from a long way off. And even if you avoided their attacks and got to the entrance of the, of the city, there was only one entrance, and it was called a Sikh, an S-I-Q. It was only as wide as one horse and rider could fit. It was a tortuous, twisty route, and uh, it has uh, sheer cliffs on either side with niches for archers. So as soon as you enter that one-mile-long seek, they would just shoot you like fish in a barrel. And so they said, we don't need anybody to help us. We don't even need God. We are secure in our strength. What is the source of your pride? Is your, what is your strength, your perceived or supposed strength? forming the source of your pride. Pride meaning that um, I can take God's gifts and I can use them for myself, not have to give Him credit for it and not remain in dependence on Him because I have what I need to guarantee my way through life. How do you get at what your strength is or what your source of pride is? You can come at it negatively. That is, not just what you're feeling good about, but what you're worried about. You can get at what you are trusting in by asking at times, what wakes you up in the middle of the night? Now, the Lord only wakes you up in the middle of the night for a couple of reasons. He wakes you up to uh, remind you to pray, and He wakes you up to give you His promises. But, uh, but He doesn't wake you up and say, you know… I've been using my calculator, and I figured out you're not having enough. Money. You're not going to have enough money. Uh, I need you to wake up and do some work on this. You're not going to have enough to pay your rent. The Lord doesn't do that. It's not the Lord who wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, "You know, I've been looking at your parenting skills. It doesn't look good for your kids, and uh, you need to get up and read some more." Dobson or read some more family life or something and become a better parent. I don't know what to do with these kids if you don't do something. I've been looking at your future and your health. Ah, your body's in bad shape. I don't know how I can help you. The Lord's not the one who does that. It's your pride that does that. Mine too. You say, that doesn't sound very prideful. That just sounds like a worry. But what we worry about, the Bible makes it clear. If you want to get over worry, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and be anxious for nothing, but instead with prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to Him. Are you looking for your strength in your 
finances, your ability to provide. And if it's not there, you worry about it because it's all up to you anyway, you think, or for your children or for your health or for your lineage or for your legacy or for the way things have always been or for tradition or for all the things that you find comforting. And when they're jostled, you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night because the Lord needs your help. The one who neither slumbers nor sleeps needs you to wake up and help him figure out the future. We also trust in our friends. You notice what he says in verse 7, all your allies have driven you to the border. You see, they had gone to other links. They thought, no, we're pretty secure here, but let's just make doubly sure we're okay. Let's go to those nations that are just beyond these mountains, and let's make friends with them. Let's make, get, make some trade deals with them. And uh, by these international alliances, we'll have another ring of protection around us. And God says, and we actually have a record of this in Amos chapter 1, verse 9, God says, you know those friends that you were trusting in? They're actually going to sell you out. Here's another way to ask, are we trusting in our friends or family? Ask yourself, what does it do to you when someone lets you down, when someone disappoints you, when someone betrays you? Now, it's appropriate to hurt over that. It's appropriate to feel devastation, to feel wronged, to lament it. But does it utterly undo you to the point where you think, I don't know what I'm going to do now? If my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, my children, my friends at work, my friends in this social group, because they've turned on me, because they've let me down, because they've disappointed me, I have nowhere else to turn. That's a mark that we've been looking to other people for our security more than we are looking to a faithful God. Or what about our knowledge? <clears throat> Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, understanding out of Mount Esau, the mighty men of Teman? You know, two of Job's friends were from these regions mentioned here. One a Shuhite, another Temanite from this area. These places that were centers of learning, centers of culture, the Edomites weren't dumb. They were learned people. And they got their wisdom, their skills, their advancements, their cutting edge in terminology for building and, and defending and for commerce from the best, most knowledgeable places that they knew of at the time. What happens when you don't know something? What happens when something around you changes that, that you don't like? What happens when paradigms shift on you, when structures change, when there's something you don't know or you can't figure out or you can't plan ahead for, and no one else knows it either, say like a pandemic or something? What does it do to us? It can unravel us. And why? because we had begun to think. I know that people used to trust God because they didn't know so many things, but now we know so much more. 
And even as Christians, we can be guilty of trusting in our way to know ourselves out of our challenges. There are any number of other sources of pride, but those are a few and probably enough for today. What does God feel about those? Well, we said that God hates them. He says in His Word that a certain number of sins are an abomination to Him, and the primary one of them is pride. C.S. Lewis wrote about pride in his book called Christian Behavior. He said, pride is the root of all evil. It is the foundation of all sin. He agreed with the Christian teaching on it, and he said it is so because it is to be at enmity with God. It is not just to say, I've got it from here. It is to say, I am going to trust in my finances, and if you disturb any of them, Lord, I'm going to blame you for it. Or if there's something I don't know and can't figure out and you don't reveal to me, I'm going to blame you for it. It's enmity against God. It is, he says, it is the, the, the person who is, is characterized or captivated by pride is one who is always looking down, metaphorically speaking, that is, as opposed to looking up. As opposed to looking up to the one who is greater than all, who is the source of everything, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, from whom all knowledge comes, uh, who is our most faithful friend. It is instead of looking to Him, it is looking down and wringing our hands and saying, I don't know how it's going, we're going to make it. Lewis said, here is the way you can recognize a humble person. He says he's not going to look like the one you think. When you think of a humble person, especially in our subculture, you think, he says, of some kind of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you, of course, I'm a nobody. But he's actually a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you wonder how anybody can be so happy. He won't be thinking about humility. He won't be thinking about himself at all. You see, when when your eyes are off of what is here and your eyes are on the Lord, you're freed to be a real friend. You're free to bring bring real knowledge, which is to say, know the Lord. You're freed to be helpful rather than hoarding. Well, what's the solution to pride? It's not always a pleasant one initially, but it is always a loving one. You know, we have this saying that's uh, emerged, especially in our evangelical circles or Bible-believing circles. It's not in the Bible, by the way. It's uh, the, the thing that we frequently hear by saying, you better not pray for humility because God will give it to you. What a perverted sense of God. As if God is just waiting for you to say the wrong thing so that He can make life miserable for you. 
Now, he does want us to pray for humility. But because he knows that pride destroys us. That pride is a, is a sentence of being a victim. Pride is a sentence to captivity. And so at times, he must take us down. And when he does, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. In fact, if God loves you, he will humble you. God loves everybody. So God says he humbles everybody. Pride always goes before a fall, and that fall is bought by the present providence of God, and that providence of bringing us down is never so that God can say, I showed you, you'll never do that again. It's rather to say, now, O oh child, now that I've taken away from you all of those foolish props, you can look at me and live freely in me. So God sometimes has to give us the gift of defeat. Sometimes we actually have to participate in loving someone else by giving them the gift of defeat. What some people call tough love or confrontation, that's, a, that's, our, that's not the biblical terminology. It is to love them enough to be a participant in God's providence in bringing them the gift of defeat, defeat in their trusting in everything that is not directly from God. And that gift is this. It is to clear your mind. It is to clear your head. It is to clear your heart. It is to sleep better at night, to realize that God gives His beloved sleep. I slept and I awoke, and I, I, when I awoke, I was still with thee. It is to be freed to live as we ought to live. It is to be humanized. I remember a, a friend many years ago, one of my elders who was recognized by everybody to be probably a small church, the greatest leader in the church, the strongest man, very successful businessman. And for a number of reasons, genetic and circumstantial and otherwise, he was completely brought down, completely destroyed by depression and anxiety. And it allowed us to turn and minister to him. And the man who had viewed himself as a rock and a rock wall, a rock of Gibraltar, one who could bear everybody on their own shoulders, but one with whom it was sort of impossible to have a real relationship because you always felt inferior to his superiority, became a very lovable person. At one point in my office, he was lamenting how much shame he had brought on the Lord. He said, by my weakness, I've, brought a, I've, I've harmed my testimony. I've brought embarrassment on the church. And I said, oh, quite the contrary. This has humanized you. You've never been more lovable. There's nothing like the Lord getting you over yourself to become more human, to be in the place where you can really thrive. And this is what God does for His people. It's the rest of the book of Obadiah. It's what brings him to the end when he says the kingdom will become the Lord's. And uh, this is a, 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 a spoiler alert. We'll talk at the end about all of these nations that he mentions, all of these nations who were their allies, who were their strengths, their, their, their strong friends and allies. 
Every one of them we can show in the New Testament had the gospel brought to them. A church was planted in every place, including Nabatea. By Acts chapter 8, a church was planted in every one of these places. God fulfilled His threat to bring them down, to humble them. Yes, He brought down that that, uh, fortress. Stay tuned for how that occurred. But His real conquest was this. He brought those nations down, and their strength, and their perceived strength, and their self-trust, and brought them instead to the foot of the cross, where they became not only recipients of the gospel, but senders of the gospel. That's the way God loves to conquer pride, not by bringing us down to wallow in our shame but to transform us into people like Jesus, who alone is strong. But how did he use his strength? He says, Paul says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, you can't get stronger than that, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. There's nothing wrong with being strong. The Lord wants to make you strong in Him, but He makes you strong in order to use that strength, that privilege, that opportunity, that power, that wealth, whatever advantage you have to serve those who don't have it. That's what Jesus did with it. What about your friends? Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I ask you to do, when you have that intimate relationship with me and follow my priorities. What are friends then? Friends are not just people that we use to get what we need. Friends are those we gather in order to advance the kingdom by bringing them into it, by being shaped and, and, uh, and grown by them. That's what Jesus did and does with friends. And what about knowledge? Jesus, the source of all knowledge, brought to us everything that we need for life and godliness, for encouragement, for strength and power. Our knowledge is not to be used to put other people in their place. Our knowledge is not to be used to show people that they can't do without us. It's not to be used in order to preserve life the way it makes us most comfortable and to view anybody who disagrees with us as somehow inferior, but rather to advance the grace of the gospel in them. This is what Jesus does for those who come to Him or who are brought to Him by His providence into a state of humility, receptivity, and true humanity. I became a pastor when I was 24 years old, and the oldest member of my church when I became a member was 90. And she and I became very close because I needed her to teach me a lot of things. I didn't think I needed her to teach me a lot of things, but she convinced me that I needed her to teach me a lot of things. And I learned a lot. And what I learned more than anything from this very strong-willed, this very stubborn, very faithful, very exuberant, poor woman 
was how to live humbly under the Lord's hand. Not that I learned it and then I got over it. It's, it's, I'm continually learning it. She knew her strengths. She knew her bright mind. She knew the legacy of the children she had reared, and she knew the great legacy she had in the church that she had helped found and the many people she had sent throughout the world. When she was dying at the hospital, they called me from the hospital just down the road, and they said, you need to come to Ms. Barker right away. She's asking for you, and uh, you need to come see her because we're about to take her to the psych ward. And uh, so I rushed to her side thinking that she very uncharacteristically would be frantic. Uh, uncharacteristically because every time I visited her for about 10 years, she had said, I don't know why the Lord leaves me here. I really would love to go to heaven. And he hasn't answered that prayer yet. I knew she wasn't afraid to die. So I rushed to her bedside. I said, Miss Barker, Miss Barker, what in the world is, is wrong with you? She said, nothing's wrong with me. It's wrong with them. Just because I tell them I want to die, they think I'm crazy. I said, you really do want to go home, don't you? And she said very wearily, yes. Because I'm so tired of me. I want to get over me. And finally be totally consumed by Jesus. I'm so tired of battling me. And the Lord finally cured her meanness, her pride that lingered. When the Lord humbles you as if, as He will, the response is not to say, why is God punishing me? Why is He so mean to me? It is instead to say, thank you, Lord, for reminding me that I have been made for your enjoyment and your glory. Please continue to help me get over me that I might live as Jesus lived for me. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You for every word of Scripture that You write in order to find us. You have found every one of us today because to be human is to be proud. To be a fallen human is. And so we pray that instead of leaving this place as we might be prone to do, which is I need to be more humble, or I've got to humble myself, but rather to receive the gracious humbling that you bring into our lives, the gracious gifts of defeat that we, O oh Lord, might know you more intimately, that we might love you more dearly and serve your people even as Jesus served us. Get your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.